0: Job chapter 33, one little verse, and verse 24. Verse 24. Then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let's read it again. Then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. The speaker of these words to the patriarch Job was a young man called Elihu. So people maybe try to debate that these words are not words to declare a ransom simply because it was Elihu, a young man, who came to speak unto Job. I want to show you tonight that this was the very inspiration of Almighty God to Job in the worst of his calamities and his times that he was going through. The speaker here, there were three uh, friends of Job who came to try and succour him, to try and encourage him, as it were, in his time of need. You know, the, the devil blew Job's house down. And the devil blew his house down and killed his children And then after that, he was covered with sore boils all over. He got to a place where his mental state was going. And he sat in ashes and in dust. Usually they sat naked, covered with the dirt of the dust and the ashes. And he got broken shards, pieces of pottery, and he scraped himself with madness, driving him mad with the pain and the itch of these sore boils all over. And he scraped them out of his skin to do anything to cut through that flesh and to take out the very sores that were in it because of the torment of them. Three friends come to him, and their names are Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. So whenever we're reading our verse tonight, it's Elihu, the younger one, who makes this declaration. We want to stay around that for a moment Just around Elihu and who is he? It seems that this young man, uh, as a last resort, came and stepped into the situation. And when you start to read from this chapter on for about the next maybe five, six chapters, just off the top of my head, five or six chapters, you'll find there's a Bible study there of the inspiration that comes upon the youngest person between the four of them, Job and his three friends. And the inspiration comes on him and he starts showing different revelations of Almighty God. Now here's something for you to note. Who was Elihu? Elihu was not of Abraham's family or seed, but he was his Abraham's brother's son, if I've got that right. I think he was Abraham's nephew or his great-nephew. So he was linked to the family of Hebrews under Hebrew, So he would have had some inkling maybe from Abraham when God had called Abraham. They used to search for God. So there was an enlightenment to some extent of what God was doing. And Elihu here, he comes with the word and the inspiration of the God of Adam, that is, Adam-man. Notice this here. He comes as the youngest, and he comes as the last, as it were, but he has a change of heart. He has to speak his mind. Notice here what it says in Job 32, if you want to go to it, and verse 5, and we'll read on. Job 32 and verse 5. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. Now, notice the youngest man here, listening to Job and his two friends. And he starts to see, hold on, because they're older than me, it doesn't necessarily mean they have more anointing than me. Because the God who anoints is the God who is eternal. He doesn't go on men's years. God can anoint a young man and a young woman to do a job an old man and an old woman won't. (laughs) Hello? He can And here he comes, and he comes with all this revelation. Read the chapters on sometime for a study when you go home. And it says, And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. Verse 6, And Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, notice this, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. Now, this young man's sitting there, and as to his years of experience, he realizes in the flesh, he's realizing that these men are more experienced. And how dare he step into a situation when there's older men there to give their experience of years? And that's right, and that's true. Why not? Because years does bring experience. And younger men do need to listen to the older men. But when the anointing came upon the young man, When there was no anointing upon the older men, that's what made the difference. That's what makes the difference. No difference between a man who's wholly religious and a man who's anointed by the Spirit. The difference is eternity. A man who is older in years and is not anointed by the Spirit will stay in the the ways of religion, will stay in the ways of his tradition but the man and the woman who are anointed and younger even in the spirit, you'll find that they're the ones who start breaking ground for God. Now, anointing comes upon men older and younger. So, older, gentlemen, I'm hitting the middle ground here because I'm in between the two us. I don't worry, I'm in it. So, please get me right here when I say the anointing is for you and the anointing is for all of us. It's the anointing. That's what I'm saying that made the difference in this situation. It's the Holy Ghost that makes the difference in the teaching of the word. And men can come stroking T's and dotting I's and theological letters behind their name that would be enough to spell the alphabet backwards and you'll find there's no anointing and there's no groundbreaking and there's no moving forward. It's all do, 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 do. But when the anointing comes upon a person with no theological training, but loves Christ and has found his way in him, you'll find God starts to move and God starts to bless. It's the anointing of the Spirit, and I'm not against people learning either. It's the anointing of the Spirit that makes the difference. Now, notice this. He says he was afraid to step in, but the anointing comes. Notice what it says then in verse 7. I said, Dez should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. Speaking to the older men now. Verse 8, he says, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. First of all, he looks at this man who's in deep need, Job. And he sees him in dust and ashes. And he sees him even unable to speak for about seven full days. He's set in a trance. Do you ever get those times whenever you're just so weak or you're just so down that you'd just sit and you'd stare at the wall if you had to all day. And everything in you tells you, you get up and go, but you've just nothing left in you to do it. Here Job finds himself like this, and these three men come, one younger, two older, and the two older men start telling Job, how wrong he went. Start telling Job, this is how you fix this, but they had never walked in Job's shoes. They had no idea what they were speaking about. And all they were doing was blaming Job, condemning Job, and making Job worse. Christian, could I ask you, how many people have condemned you in your life instead of loving you in your life? How many people have looked at you when you're down and thought they'll put the boot in rather than give you the hand up? Here were two men who were his friends, and sometimes people call them Job's comforters. But you know what? There was not much comfort for Job at this time. So here we have these three. This young man is watching and he's listening and he's looking from person to person and he also gets angry with Job. We'll explain it in a moment. And as he gets angry with the three of them, the Spirit of God comes on him. The Spirit of God shows his anger through Elihu to these men. But then he shows his grace. Notice this. Verse 7, he says... I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom, verse 8, but there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So already this young man is claiming there's an anointing come upon me from God. I want to break this down for you for a moment. The word here for inspiration is the word neshama. the word Neshamah means spirit or simply breath of God. Spirit or breath of God. Elihu, this young man, comes and says, there's a spirit in all of us. You're a spirit. You have a spirit. You're a spirit. You're a spirit. You have a spirit. And you have a spirit. And you have a spirit. But he says to them, you three, you have a spirit. But your spirit is dead toward God. Men and women in this village and surrounding area and they're all souls of spirits but they're dead toward God. He says there's a spirit in a man, there's a spirit in a woman and that spirit will return to God. He says there's a spirit in a man and there's a spirit in a woman but it's the inspiration of the Almighty that we need to bring us to understanding. Now all of this can point to Job, and all of this can point to his time, but this points to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the spirit in every man and woman are always seeking even the dark, deep dyed so-called atheists like Stephen Fry and his vulgarity toward God. Even the like of him, deep down within him, he knows there's a God. Don't you believe it for one second? He knows there is a God. It's called rebellion and perversion. This one, he says, there's a sp- inspiration from the Almighty. Neshema, breath of God, spirit of God. That's what it means for inspiration. Here's a little example of this word, Neshema In Genesis chapter 2, and verse 7, it says, "In the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Here the Lord is showing us that a creation, when Adam man was made, when Adam kind was to come forth, he took that man for the garden and he formed him and he breathed into him the breath of life. The term breath of life is the same word For inspiration, he breathed into him his spirit. He breathed into him the breath of God. And he became a living soul. And he became a living soul. Adam's fall in the garden, federal head of mankind. And when he fell in the garden, man became dead toward God. And Paul tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins until the breath of God comes upon us and calls us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes inspiration of God. Do you see if you're here tonight and God's been speaking to you? Do you see if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord? Do You see, if you're here and maybe this week or this past fortnight or past period of time or maybe this moment, you start to sense within you there's something about this that's true. There's something about this with God. These things are starting to interest me. It's not of yourself. It's not of the spirit of man. It's of the inspiration of the spirit of the Lord. It's called the breath of God on a man and a woman. And that's why today... If you hear his voice, you harden not your heart. Because who knows if there's no inspiration tomorrow. Notice this. Man became a living soul because of the Neshima. In John chapter 20 and verse 22, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples who he would become of the apostles of the Lamb. And as he's speaking to them, we're told in John 20, verse 22, and he breathed on them. And he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. It's the exact same term, only a different word because it's New Testament in Greek. It's the exact same word where God breathed on Adam. Here on Adam, kind he breathe again? The fullness of the Godhead bodily breathing into man. And we're told he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost the exact same term. This young man, Elihu, had the same experience. And the same experience was, he says, there is inspiration from the Almighty. In other words, sitting among three older men. He says, you are very old, he says. He says, and being very old, he says, I'm the younger I sat back. But God Almighty has come on me, and I must deliver his message and his word to you. So he delivers a message, which is quite long. I've picked one verse just for uh, our tonight's topic. See the word here for Almighty. Let me look at this for a moment. The inspiration of the Almighty. The word Almighty is the word Shaddai. Shaddai. And it simply means the most powerful or omnipotent. The most powerful or the omnipotent. The young man says the breath of the most powerful is the Holy Ghost. The breath of the omnipotent is very God from very God. It's the Holy Ghost. And the breath of God, he says, has come upon me. He says, from the omnipotent God who made the heavens and the earth that I may speak to you. So this young man wasn't just speaking from his own heart. This young man wasn't just speaking because he thought he had throw his two cents worth in. This young man was compelled to speak because it was the very moving of the Spirit of God upon him. This is the same Spirit which hovered upon the face of the deep. Think about this. This is the same eternal Holy Ghost, the same eternal Spirit who moved upon the face of the waters. This is the same Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, which was poured out upon the church of God when it came in cloven tongues like as of fire. This is the same Holy Ghost who's in this meeting that you felt tonight and you've experienced tonight. The exact same one who spoke to Elihu, who anointed him and brought him courage and the ability to bring God's word. It's the exact same Spirit of God who formed and created the earth, breathed into Adam, and the same one who walked in a body of flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. This young man, with the inspiration of God, was angry at the three men. And why was he angry? Well, because two of them blamed Job and condemned him, when it wasn't Job's fault. And he also says in verse 2, 32 and verse 2, that he was angry against Job, it says, was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. I want you to read that yourself in your own Bible. Because there's something here we have to deal with. Against Job was was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. One old writer said, Job was more concerned about being right himself than God being right. We have a problem because at the very beginning of the book of Job, when the devil comes to talk to God, he says, uh, he had challenged God about Job. He says, you know, take your heads from about him, paraphrasing for time's sake, take your heads from round about him and see him curse you to your face. Because the Lord, it says, Job was upright and astute evil or he, he, he was a, a perfect man in his generations. He was an upright man. He kept himself away from evil. He was a, a man set apart. We told that Job, he built altars. He built altars and he, he worshipped at the altars unto God. In fact, he built altars, and not only did he build them, but he built them for his children because his children, they were out partying, and that's when the house got blown down. And so whenever we read this, how could this young man turn to a man who has been sitting in dust and ashes with his children gone and with his, his house blown down, with his cattle and his livestock taken from him, with his health in disarray, sitting in a, a pile of vices, scraping himself with a broken pot shard that he may t- relieve himself from the torment? Now, how could a young man like Elihu say, I'm, I'm angry at you? and I wouldn't dare do that I can I never want to be tested like Job was tested never but along the way here somewhere remember it is the spirit of God who came upon this young man somewhere along the way here God was unhappy at Job's response and thanks Job was looking to be justified in himself, even though Job done no real wrong to deserve all that. Sometimes we blame God on things that the devil is doing. God gets the blame for everything. Job tried to justify himself rather than God And Job is like all of us. Every man seems to think that he can justify himself by his own deeds and by his own morality. Deserving God's kingdom, deserving God's heaven, even Job thought it himself. Do you know what it lets me know? That no matter what happens to me in my life, No matter how hard I try in my life, I must look at what God is doing in the darkest of moments, and I must say, like Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He had death itself envelop around Him, with the weight and the pressure and the very bleed uh, of, from His very skin. And the blood falling, as it were, as great drops, the sweat, as great drops to the ground. When he fell, it says the Lord went and he fell on his face. And the idea in the Greek verb is he got up and he fell. And he got up again and he fell and he got up again and he fell and he got up and he fell. And Christ in the garden, he kept doing it over and over again, struggling to get up, but he kept falling with the pressure. The beautiful Christ And at one point he turns and he says, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, listen, not my will, but thine be done. Now that's the example. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Tend to try to justify why we're worthy for heaven, or the kingdom of God. You know, I believe we'll be on the earth; we'll not be floating up in the sky. You know what I mean, but and we try to justify why we should enter the gates of the glorious city, and why we are worthy, and what we are, and who we are, and what we do. Sir, look at me, Lord. And when our loved ones are taken from us and we have the nice little quotations and things that we say, oh, the most beautiful flower in the garden was taken and all this sort of stuff, too good for this world. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the man you're listening to. And all belonging to him. But we try to justify to ease our conscience before God. As a minister, you try and say nice words to comfort a family when you don't know where that one went. The state they went in. Here we have Job justifies himself in the anger of a I who is kindled by the Spirit of God deliver the message. Do you know any preacher, including myself, that's worth their salt, they should be preaching and believing they're delivering the message in the Holy Ghost? Because if we're not, then we're wasting our time. And if you're witnessing, you witness in the Holy Ghost. Because if you're not, you're wasting your time. A lie who comes trembling before older men, but under the anointing of the Spirit. Do you know the man and the woman who kneel before God can stand before anyone? You kneel before God before you go to the job interview you'll stand before the boss. Job. He turns to Job and he says, Job, you can't be justified by your altar building. Neither can you be justified and made righteous by what you do. You may be perfect or upright in man's eyes and even God sees you have a good heart. Job, It's not enough. You need the inspiration of God to turn to Christ. So, in Job 33 and verse 24, Job chapter 33 and verse 24, that was my introduction. in Job chapter 33 verse 24 look at the first line he says after speaking a while obviously we're jumping across and this is what we rejoice in tonight and those who we have watched lower down into the grave wondering what condition they were in we need to leave them with God Because look at this line, then he is gracious unto him. Let's stop there. Then he is gracious. Then he is gracious. Did you hear that? Whenever your heart's aching and you're disturbed, let's think about this. Then he is gracious. More gracious than you and more gracious than the man you're listening to. Who is he? The Almighty, God our Father. Then he is gracious unto him. The word "gracious" is a word kanan. Listen to what it means. It means to show favor. It means to show pity when there was no pity. I like this, it means to favorably incline towards one. To favorably incline towards one. Here this young man being angry, coming with the wrath in him which is stirred up from a holy God he comes and he sees all of the justification of man and himself and his inability to help himself and save himself. But in the great heart of God And his love for those whom he has set up his love upon from before the foundation of the world, he inclines unto them. Favorably. It comes from a root word, Cain. And the root word Cain gives the idea, one bowing down or stooping down in kindness to an inferior. I'll say it again, one bowing down or stooping down in kindness, to an inferior. In other words, in Genesis chapter 6, when there was going to be a flood, the Lord tells Noah how to build an ark and what to make it off. And when he makes this ark, he says, listen, Noah, he says, if you're in the ark, you're going to be saved. And we're told, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word grace is again the same root word, cain. And it means God came the superior and he bowed down and he stooped down in kindness to Noah the inferior. The man who was righteous, the best he knew how, was still never good enough. It took God to come. It took Almighty God to stoop to him. In other words, it took God to come down to lift him up. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. He came down to where we were. He stood down in kindness to us. Now, maybe there's another little twist here, if I can put it that way, of Elihu coming. And thank you for your attention. Please bear with me because I know this is long. I'm still sort of, I'm in the introduction. Now I'm in the preface of the book. Now notice this. Maybe Elihu was speaking from some sort of experience which he had before, and so the grace of God or the anointing of God comes upon him. In other words, when you've received grace, you want others to know it and be gracious to them. Elihu, his name means he is my God or He, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is my God. That's what his name means. Jehovah, or Yahweh, is my God. I find that strange. Because the Lord's redemptive name was Yahweh, Jehovah. So this young man must have had some experience with God. His name means Yahweh, or Jehovah, is my God. Listen to this. His father's name, Barak El, Barak El for God. Barak El simply means God blesses or whom God blessed. His family name is Buzz. You'd change it, wouldn't you? I would. Buzz. Buzz means contempt. Intent. And if you go to verse 2, it's in verse 6 where it tells us his family lineage, but verse 2 tells us a little bit more. It says that he was off, he was a buzz out, meaning contempt, and he was off the kindred of Ram. It's believed to be the area of Aram, a realm where you go over the fertile crescent where Abraham came from, where Iraq would be, and around that direction. You know what Ram means? It means high or exalted. High or exalted. Now, when we look at names that are prophetic in Scripture, they either speak of a a time that has happened, and so they name their child, or a time that they believe will happen, and so they name their child for that. And if that be so, then something may have happened that in the place of Ram, a place where it's high and exalted, that every good gift and every perfect gift was from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James tells us. And God in his common or his general grace, you know what that is? That's grace where the rain falls on you and on me. That's where the sun shines on the good and the bad. That's where the sun shines and all. Well, we get a little of it, but people get more of it. But at the same time, that's general grace that cause the crop and the field to grow. God is generally gracious to every man and woman on the planet. Electing grace and saving grace is different when God comes directly to the heart of a man and a woman. And here there's something has happened that this place was called high and exalted people. Something happens in this family of the Buzzards, where they become contemptible. They have a great fall or something must have happened and so you know what happens? When he is born, we're going to call him Buzz. Imagine putting a blame on the poor wee spud when he's born. It's all your fault, Buzz. You represent what was happening in our land and you represent what was happening among our people and how we were looked at and treated by us. Contempt. But then something must have happened which showed grace of God coming to this family. Maybe it was the link with Abraham. We're told that Elihu's father, Barak Hel, is born, and he's called God blesses. In the midst of contempt, God blessed. Starts to lift them up again. It shows you how God is blessed and lifting us up. And then, of course, Elihu is born, and they can proclaim, Yahweh, the Redeemer, he's my God. Now, in that, maybe somewhere along the way, one of them has come. Maybe one of Abraham's family have come of have told him of Abraham or Abram before Abraham. And whatever has happened, there's been a blessing. And now they've come to see Job. And as they've come to see Job, what happens? He says, I want to tell you about the grace of God, Job. I want to tell you about a family that's been in contempt. And I want to tell you of a great God that came and lifted us up again. Is that your life? In contempt? Is that your life? You're going through a hard time. Is that your life? I want to tell you something. We have a great God and he's going to come and he's going to lift you up again. He's going to lift you up again. A who, he says, then he is gracious unto him and saith, deliver him from going down to the pit to have found a ransom. The word ransom here it's a word, kofor. Kofor. It simply means the price of a life. The price of a life. Or it can mean a covering for a life. Through the inspiration of the Almighty, Elihu comes as prophet, then he comes as mediator. This is the thing you'll see this young man coming and starts to stand in the gap between God and man picture of Christ again and he says I the Almighty says through him I have found a ransom I have found a ransom Charles Haddon Spurgeon from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London gave a little line a little shot he was brilliant listen to what he says this ransom is the invention of divine wisdom This ransom is the invention of divine wisdom. There's no man could have thought of this. There's none on earth could accomplish this. And this was the ransom that would be paid. The Lord says, I have found a ransom. Again, it's not that God had to go looking everywhere for a ransom. You know, we hear the songs, oh, and I was looking, walking, and the Lord's seeking through the halls of heaven, and the Son says, here am I. That's not nonsense. God just says, I go do (laughs) it. It's as simple as that. I go myself. He says, I have found a ransom. He says, deliver him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom. And let me show you a little example here of this word ransom. It's in, for Kopher. It's in Genesis 6 again in verse 14. Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. 14. You look it up and I'll get a drink. And that is water just for the, the tape's sake or the CD sake. In case I wonder what sort of church you're at tonight. Me getting a drink. <laughs> Genesis 6 and verse 14. Notice what the Lord says here to Noah. Make thee an ark of gopher. Now that's gopher wood. That's not gopher. It just sounds similar. Gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark and pitch shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, do you see the word pitch? It's the word for ransom. How do you work that out? It's the word kopher. In other words, the Lord says, when you get in, get the ark built, get the tar, get the pitch, cover the whole ark. Cover the whole outside of it, Noah. Make sure you don't miss any of it. Just cover the whole lot. Completely with pitch. Then, get on the inside and cover it again with pitch. Spread it out and make it watertight. That's the word for ransom. So when Elihu comes, he's coming with the inspiration of the Almighty and he says, Job, I want to tell you something that there's only righteousness this way, but God's gracious to you and he'll bring you out. He'll lift you up. He says, he says, deliver him from going down to the pit for I have found a covering. I'm going to cover Job. I'm going to cover him as it were with my pitch. I'm going to cover him with the feathers of my wings and he'll be safe under my arm. This is the price of a life. The day of judgment. I'm a sinner worthy of everything that God would throw at me. But I'm going to stand in that day. There's been a ransom, has been paid by the blood of Jesus. And I'm covered by the (laughs) blood of the Lamb. Are you covered? Are you covered? I have to round this up. Thank you for your attention. It's tremendous. Notice chapter 33 and verse 26. Go to it, they show you. This is wonderful. This is now we're looking at things. We're starting to look up. God's starting to lift us up now. Notice, this is for those who who get converted. Chapter thirty three and verse twenty six, He shall pray unto God, and he will be favourable unto him. He shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. A man and a woman who realize that through the inspiration of the Spirit to quicken them that see their need of Christ that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and Christ is the only exclusive Savior. He's the only one. When they see that and receive him and what he's done on Calvary's cross and say, Lord, I need to be covered. There's a ransom has been paid for me. You've paid it all, Lord Jesus. You know what happens? He hears your cry. He answers the call. He comes favorably to you. And then, what does Job say? He covers you with his righteousness. I had a fellow Thursday evening, came online to me. I wrote something up about the righteousness of Christ. And after about 6,000 people, one came on to try and dampen the flame. Just one. And he was a Christian. And this is what he said. Yeah, I believe in righteousness, but see, once you sin once, you're unrighteous again. I understand what he means in that. So I said, what do you mean in that? If you don't do this and don't do that and don't do it, you're unrighteous. So after about going back and forward with messages, talking to each other, I says, well, tell me something. At what point do you become righteous and unrighteous? By you doing what? By you doing what? Tell me when you're righteous by what you do and when you're unrighteous by what you do or what you don't do. I says, do you know that whenever you walk down the street and you see someone and they're unwell, maybe sitting and they're disabled, see if you don't go and pray for that person, God puts in your heart you should be praying for that person. Do you know that him or her who know to do good and doeth it not, it's a sin unto them? Are you unrighteous then? So at what point do we become unrighteous? And I think he started to see his way as he came and he says, oh, I'm just trusting in the righteousness of Christ now and nothing else. I says, well, then I think we're on the same page. Brothers and sisters, I believe in living right. I believe in walking right. I believe in holiness of life. But I can tell you something. I don't believe in my righteousness one little bit. I believe in the righteousness that he has imputed to me. nothing of myself. This is a prophecy of Christ coming and God joying over the converted. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, listen what the Lord Jesus says. For even the Son of Man came not to minister unto, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2 and 6 says of the Lord Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Job 36 and verse 18 brings a different tone. Listen to what it says. And because there is wrath, beware. Speaking to those who do not know the Lord as their Savior now, and you're living in your righteousness, your church righteousness, your churchianity, your religion, trusting in anything but Christ. And because there is wrath, remember a guy who comes, his wrath is against. It's God's wrath. You're trying to make yourself righteous by your works and your religion. How dare you, Job? How dare you think you're worth anything of God's kingdom? Job is rocked by this. And now he comes and he says, and because there is wrath, beware lest he take thee away with a stroke. See the word stroke? It can also mean, beware he doesn't come and hit you a slap and you're gone. Or like a clap of the hands, that's why I did it. Notice what it says. And because there is wrath, beware lest he take thee away with his stroke. Then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. The word great means a multitude of ransom. A massive ransom. Everything that you would give, he says, it cannot cover you. There is no other ransom. I'll just read this and we'll close. I have a couple of verses, a few verses to read. On that I'll try not to anyway. Comment on them. Psalm 49, verses 6 to 10. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth for, ceaseth forever that he should still live forever and not see corruption, for he seeth the, the wise men die, and likewise the fool, and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. See what he's saying? It doesn't matter what you accumulate, it won't go with you. Get yourself right with God now. William Cooper says, Dear Dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. What about the ransom when Christ returns? What about the ransom when he returns and he changes his ecclesia, his redeemed saints? fashions our bodies to be changed like unto his own body. Changes us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Here's one little verse of kingdom blessing for you as we go home. Isaiah 35 and verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Praise the name of the Lord. We'll all go in covered as it were, in the righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and covered in the blood. And there'll be no more sorrow, and there'll be no more sighing, and there'll be no more death, and there'll be no more sickness, and you'll not be looking for anything that's going to hurt you, nothing's going to harm you, and all we're going to see is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we'll all enter in to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless his glorious name. That's the ransom that was paid for you. And I at Calvary's cross. I trust you're saved. I trust you're saved. I trust you're trusting in him. For his glory and for his name's sake. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Don't forget next week we're going to look at the nations. I might look at atomic warfare next week too. We'll see. We'll see how we can all. I'm going to ask the group to come up, and we'll sing as we close and go home. And why they're coming up? Let me say this. Do you see what you're? I mentioned I mentioned ISIS this morning and their depraved acts and their ways. <clears throat> Do you know who they really are? Do you know who really backed them up? The CIA. So he started that. They were the rebels who were fighting against what's his name, His name slipped me. I could take his name any other time. The king of Jordan, or not Jordan of Syria. What's his Assad? Bashar Assad, thank you, Stan. Bashar Assad. And they were, the, they were rebels, and they were actually backed by the international bankers. International Jewish bankers, actually. They were backed by the CIA, backing them, and pressing for that to happen. Now, see, when you look at that, you know what you're saying? The word ISIS it was originally in the original name, and then they went to IS for uh, Islamic State. But ISIS actually is a territorial name as well. ISIL. It's a territorial name. Do you know where it includes Palestine? So that's why he's say, well, where does ISIL come from? It included Palestine as well. And what is happening is, this is a new world order. This is a, a one world government takeover. Where people, the only way to get out of it is going to be through war. When I say get out of it, you won't get out of it. The only way to make more money for the bankers I'm not talking about the people in the Northern Bank. Please don't go around and shout at them when you go there. (laughs) I'm talking about the International Monetary Bankers and the New World Order. The only way that this is going to be changed from here on in is not by the United States and it's not by France getting involved with Russia and we'll look at that next week in God's will. It's not by that. Do you know how this is going to get changed? There's going to be a climax coming and it'll build up and it'll build up whether it's a month, a year or ten years, I don't know. Christ is going to come. He's going to do it, and they're going to see him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to do it. And by the way, there's a revival going on in Germany at the minute. Some parts of Germany, Christina, there so you are. You can pray into that as well. Your own, your own kith and kin there. You can pray into that. There's a lot of people getting saved in Germany. There's a lot of people getting saved in uh, Ukraine at the minute as well. A lot of Baptists are over there doing a lot of good gospel work there. People are getting saved. And listen, as I told you this morning, if you weren't here, Donna Cloney Elam has a Russian website. <laughs> <laughs> or on a Russian website and they're downloading all the sermons there. So who knows? Pray into it. I mean, the Russians will get saved too. Because there are Russians getting saved as well. But what about you? Are you saved? Will you be covered?